Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thank you for listening to Your Working Life, my podcast series featuring thought leaders in the career and personal growth arena. You spend a significant portion of your life at work, so my goal is to provide you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. And I am delighted to welcome my very special guest to the show today, David Burkus. David, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Hey, I'm really excited about our conversation, and I want to tell our listening audience all about you. David Burkus is an associate professor of management at Oral Roberts University, where he teaches courses on organizational behavior, creativity, and innovation, and strategic leadership. David was recently named one of the top 40 under 40 professors who inspire. After decades of research, he's found that not only are many of our fundamental management practices misguided, but they can be downright counterproductive. He is a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Bloomberg Business Week, and the Financial Times. He's a popular corporate speaker and has worked with everything from startups to Fortune 500 companies. So David, welcome. I'm really excited to dive into a conversation today. How did you come up with the idea for under new management? Yeah, so and, and first of all, thank you. You made me sound way cooler than I oh, probably really great. am in that bio. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Um, you pumped me up and got me excited, good, right? Good, so that's good. awesome. So um, my first book was was called The Myths of Creativity, and it was really about what are the misconceptions about how creative firms work, how we're supposed to work, all of those sort of things. What are the myths and misconceptions? And let's correct those. And in the process of writing that, that's where the sort of inkling for uh, this idea came from, because you see a lot of these firms do things a little bit differently. And it works. And then, you know, by training, I'm an organizational psychologist. And so I see everything through that lens of, well, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why some of these crazy ideas work. It's it's backed by psychology. And so that's why it's better than business as usual. And that's really where it gave me that idea for like, maybe we need to explore this more because it's it's not just about like, oh, these policies sound uh, sound fun, so let's try them. There's really a lot of social science research behind them about why they are such a good idea. And I believe part of a larger trend in as the nature of work shifted, we're just now catching up with the changes we need to make to work to uh, to a to accommodate those changes. And as, as a researcher, I'm sure that you learned things that to us as listeners, we would find jaw dropping. So can you share some? And uh, I'm curious what you're going to come up with right off the bat, because having seen the book, I, I have a few specific questions, <laughs> but I'll let you take the lead. Yeah. So the, I mean, the one that was jaw dropping even to me was probably, uh, I have a whole chapter about salary transparency. Yeah. And I, I was not expecting to be as big of an advocate as I am now for it when I started writing this book. You know, I, I get it. It feels uncomfortable to talk about how much we get paid. I'm, I'm in that exact same boat. But, you know, in, in psychology research, there's a, about a 50-year-old uh, principle, well-researched, well-verified, called equity theory. And yeah. I think equity theory is really interesting and explains the number one pushback I have, I see against people who say, no, 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 we need to keep it secret because otherwise there'd be comparisons and jealousy and animosity. And equity theory basically says, that's already happening. Like, that's already going on in yeah. the workplace. People are, are constantly scanning to make sure that the ratio of how hard they work to how much they're getting paid matches what other people around them in their peer group 
are also seeing, but it's a perception, right? It's not the actual information. We're trying to guess at what the salary is. We're trying to guess at how hard somebody is working. And it turns out we're terrible at judging that. We, we consistently overestimate certain positions, underestimate other positions. And as a result, what is probably a relatively fair workplace gets perceived to be hugely unfair. And so, I mean, I, I believe the best. I believe most HR departments, most senior leaders of companies want to pay their people fairly. But equity theory says that you know, these comparisons are going on. They're going on with faulty data. And so if that's the case, then your best bet is to make it transparent and is to open it up and say, here's what everybody gets paid. Here's how we calculate that. If you want to have a conversation about how we can make that more fair, let's do that. But let's not, you know, let's not do this comparison thing and guessing game and all that sort of stuff. Here's the information. So you can make that comparison. And if, if one person is underperforming consistently and really is overpaid, we can fix that issue. If there's a systematic issue that's leading to a bunch of different people or a specific group to be underpaid, then we'll deal with that issue in fixing our formula and our calculations. And so, you know, I get it. I started out from this place that it's uncomfortable to talk about this, but the social science research is there, the examples of companies are there, and I couldn't help but, you know, two years after starting to write this book, I found myself on the TEDx stage advocating for, yeah. hey, here's why we should do this across the board. Well, and I would hope that this will help dramatically narrow the gender wage gap, right? I mean, this seems like such an obvious step in the right direction. Yeah, and 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 we see that in in the research now. These comparisons are always really hard. There's a uh, there's a Freakonomics episode podcast yeah. episode yeah. I recommend to people if you really want to dig down into the the details on all this. But uh, let's just use raw numbers, uncontrolled to uncontrolled. In the United States, it's seventy seven percent, seventy seven cents on the dollar. That's a metric right. we're all sort of used to. Right. But in the federal government, where salaries are transparent, where everybody's paid at a certain rank, and then everybody knows what all the different ranks are getting paid, it shrinks to eleven percent. So I can't say it's because of just that, but that is but pretty strongly suggestive. Yeah. And then in the book, I actually profile a company called Buffer. And Buffer is is the most transparent company I've, I've seen. Even customers can look up what salary uh, different employees of the company make. And wow. Buffer actually found out a couple weeks ago they had a gender wage gap problem. But because of their transparency, they figured out the exact variable in the formula that was triggering it, and they're taking steps to resolve it, which that's a hard job. And they probably wouldn't have done that or even discovered the issue had there not been a transparency condition. Wow. Is it too early, David, in the research or in, in your experience with this process to determine if salary transparency has also impacted retention or company culture or engagement? So I, I don't have a lot of research on that other than uh, what I like to call anecdotal uh, yeah. experiential research, which is basically just me talking with companies. Um, I don't have any large-scale data on that. I, I can tell you that the, the effects of companies that switch based on what I've seen are hugely positive. There's a there's about a one week to one month period of time where it's a little bit weird because anybody can look it up and everybody feels a little odd. And then it sort of regresses back to where it was before, but with increases in the sense of fairness and collaboration. The, the conversation shift from so-and-so is overpaid because you're unfair to hey, I think I should be paid more. Here's my case. Here's my case based on the formula. And then we can have a productive conversation about everybody getting paid what they in accordance with what the value that they're bringing to the organization. Got it. Got it. So something that, that made my jaw drop was what you shared in the book about how companies that are banning email are more productive. 
bring it on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, tell me so we about love that. We, we we love email. We we love and hate email. Exactly. I definitely. I mean, I'm with you. I feel when I clear out and get to inbox zero, I yep. feel like I'm hugely productive. Yep. Although most of the time, all I've done is I've just thrown the ball over the other side of the fence, and I'm waiting for it to come back to me. I haven't actually moved it forward on the field, and. And the, th- the thing with it is that we never really had a conversation about what is the, the best way to use this tool, what is the best way to actually communicate, and we find that conversation finally happening now. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that you know, this, uh, this era of push notifications where your email is being you know, pushed to your phone and to your inbox every five minutes is hugely distracting, so in the office, we're distracted by it. Moreover, the fact that people are working at whatever hours conform to them means people are, in essence, on 24 hours a day. They're right. not getting time with their family. They're not getting rest time. And so the smartest companies I'm seeing are, at the very minimum, putting limits on when you can send email, not when you can compose it, but when the when server system it. will actually send it out to somebody yeah. else. And then some are actually saying, you know what, internally we don't send email, we're going to move to a different system for electronic communication. And uh, both uh, for both in the office and out of the office, the results are hugely positive. Interesting. So I, I read a recent New York Times article about the pencils down concept with the big financial organizations who are at least saying out loud that they don't want their professionals working at night and on the weekends unless there is a very significant deal that's time sensitive. So they're trying to really um, diminish this concept of the 90 hour work week. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, so a couple. First, this whole 40-hour work week is actually a, a test that really hasn't been tested a lot. You know, I think Henry Ford actually invented the idea, and then everybody just decided work should conform to that, right? Mm. And what I mean by that is not just that, yeah, we should be fighting hard to get back to 40, but who says it's 40, right? right. Every, every task varies, and every job varies. And like you said, with the, the um, accounting firms and other places, there are seasons where we're busier than others. And right. what I... What I think is really crazy is this idea that we need to get back to the 40, but 40 is still what it is. You know, if you're in the summer season in a financial firm where it's not as busy as it is, you know, right now in tax season, um, less than 40 should be appropriate. Mm -hmm. Really, you know, the the buzzword term is a results-only work environment. Um, And I I support that idea because I think now in a knowledge work economy, we can hold people to getting the work done in however uh, many hours that takes. But I also think that means even in little things like electronic communication, we need to be sure to protect time that people are saying is not work time. It used to be easy. If you called my office phone when I was at home, no one answered because I'm not in the office. Email is different, and we never really had that conversation about how do we create a barrier like we had with all of these other forms of communication. Yeah, the rules of engagement have changed with technology. Absolutely. So, David, in your book, Under New Management, you also talk about unlimited vacation and how this really unlocks performance on the job. Tell, Tell me what you learned about that. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is this is not actually about vacation days, right? Mm-hmm. So unlimited vacation or, or what's perhaps better uh, called a a no vacation policy policy, although unlimited vacation has a better <laughs> ring to it. Yeah. The the idea is we're in that results-only work environment. We're, we're allowing people to work when it's best for them, holding them accountable to results. So why are we tracking the certain number of days they're taking vacation, right? Some, some people need more. Some people need less. Some people would love the ability to do their work, but do it from a beach house and, yep. you know, at, at the shore or whatever, working a few hours a day, getting the results done, and then being uh, what we would call on vacation, 
even though they're working, right? And so the current vacation structure, you get X number of days per year and you can roll them over or use them or lose them or whatever a company does. It doesn't send that message that we really are a results-only work environment. And moreover, it doesn't send the message that we trust you to sort of get your work done. If we didn't, then why would we be limiting the number of, of days that you're taking. So Netflix is the one that most popularized this idea. And they really did it out of trust. The employees pushed back and said, you're not tracking the days we are working. Why don't you trust us on the days we're not working? And senior leadership, to their credit, didn't have a good answer. And so they said, okay, we'll do away with it. No vacation policy doesn't mean no vacation. And across all companies, we find people take on average about as much as they did before. Some companies experience people not taking enough vacations. Mm -hmm. Other companies experience people taking more than they used to. But on average, it's about the same. To me, the big differentiator is that people are being trusted more and then they're more likely to respond with trustworthy behavior. And, you know, this shouldn't be a revolutionary concept. When you treat employees like adults, they'll respond by being like adults. I mean, one person might act like an adolescent, but you deal with the one person. You don't make a policy that says we don't trust anybody because one person took advantage of us. But it's a game changer when you really have that trust and you illustrate that with senior leadership and then you have, whether it is um, an actual protocol in place or it's the concept of accountability, it works. Yeah, it it really does. And, you know, I think we're seeing a trend towards this because we're moving to, in a knowledge work world, we're moving to the place where the people doing the work know more about what it takes to get the work done than do the management class or the management tier in the organization. And so because of that, we have no choice but to trust those individual contributors on how to best manage their own work. Right. So I can only imagine how exciting it must have been visiting all of these companies and talking about breaking the old rules and starting new trends. What are some of your favorite places and and people that you met along the journey i can tell you from this you know it it was it was a ton of fun first of all and you um there are those sort of celebrity ceos and people you really want to interact with etc and i and i I loved that but the person that uh, i admire the most out of doing all this research is probably one you've never heard of and and honestly you should have on the podcast i should link you guys up please do um it's a guy by the name of dane atkinson he was a he's a serial ceo and entrepreneur he actually just before starting this company he was the ceo of um squarespace the website company and he started a social media analytics company called Summall and I interviewed him because he was committed to pay transparency but as I kept going back and we had several different conversations he was not only was he implementing a lot of the ideas that are in the book but we weren't having a conversation about here's what we do he was asking me just as much as I was asking him he really had this commitment to wanting to learn and wanting to keep improving his workplace and he's the one that gave me this quote um, that I put in the end of the book, great leaders don't innovate the product, they innovate the factory. And I think it's absolutely brilliant that you know a company gets started because it's offering an innovative product or service. But at a certain point as it grows, senior leaders need to switch their mentality from innovating that product or service to innovating the workplace that allows the people whose job it is to deliver that product or service innovating a workplace so that they can do their best work. And so that, I mean, to me, that's the task and the difference between being a self-employed or a startup founder and being a true sort of business leader is that an organizational leader, they have that responsibility to keep making improvements to the workplace and let people do their best work. That's great. Yeah, you've got to be nimble. You know, you've got to be nimble and flexible and resilient. Great. Yes, please introduce me to Dane. He sounds fantastic. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. I imagine there are also some companies that you've met along the the way that were resistant to change without, you know, throwing them under the bus. Tell us more about that. 
So, you know, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think some people um, are, are resistant to change and just didn't change. And, and honestly, I don't interact with very many of those because, you know, they weren't all that interesting to talk to. What was really interesting to me were the people that were trying to make the change, but then were also resistant to it. So like, for example, in the uh, unlimited vacation or no vacation policy policy chapter, I talk a lot about the Chicago Tribune company. Yes. Tribune Publishing attempted to go the way of unlimited vacation, but they did it in a different mentality, in a different spirit, and one that was picked up on by employees and, and seen as essentially trying to rob them of the paid time off they had already earned. Mm. And that became a huge problem. They, and, and to their credit, I mean, I, I credit the senior leaders of seeing this is a problem, we'll go back to the way it was. Um, but they probably could have done a better job in rolling it out in a way that bestowed trust. And that's what I think is most interesting. You know, uh, undergirding all of these different practices is not that you should just do the practice because it's the way the world is going. It's that the nature of work is changing, and it's changing into one where management and individual contributors have to have a much deeper dialogue about doing the work and how to do the work. Because if we go back to that old Frederick Taylor idea that there's management and there's labor and labor's job is to do work and management's job is to it make sure labor does the work because they're lazy and you can't trust them, that way of working is not working anymore. And even if you try and make these changes but you don't change that mentality, it's not going to work. And so to me, that was most interesting. You compare the ones who tried the policy to the ones who tried it but didn't try it with the right mentality and so it fell apart. That really undergirds, I mean, there's there's 13 different ideas in the book, but there's one big idea, which is that we need to be innovating the factory and we need to be doing it in a way that's having a dialogue between individual contributors and management. Excellent. So, David, do you anticipate changes that are percolating right now that are just bubbling to the surface? What do you predict will, will be the next change? Well, so I don't like making predictions. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Because I'm because we're almost always wrong. I'll tell you one thing that I was intrigued by in the book, but didn't couldn't study because just the jury is so much out on this. Okay, we're we're talking a ton about the gig economy, the sharing economy, yeah. whatever you want to call it, with places like Airbnb and right. Uber and Lyft and those companies. And and what I think is interesting in that is I think that will inevitably lead to a realization among even traditional salaried 40 hour a week employees of realizing that everyone is essentially an independent contractor. You might be an employee illegally, but you're there by choice. You're an independent contractor, no different from somebody in this Uber and Airbnb class. And so I'm, I'm really interested in the, um, the mentality shift that is going on as a result of the buzz that the gig economy is getting and how that's going to apply even to people who don't engage in that sector. That I think has some interesting implications. It'll take us five, 10, maybe even 20 years to figure out how it all shakes up. But you know, maybe in about five to 10 years, we can start making predictions on what that means for the future of all employees, not just people who are partnering with these type of gig economy services. Excellent insight, and we shall stay tuned. So David, your book is Under New Management. Tell us how we can buy the book and connect with you out in the world. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you can buy the book wherever your favorite retailer is, and, and of course, I hope you do that, you know, in triplicate, but if you just want more information, there's a ton of free resources on my website, um, davidberkus.com, that's B-U-R-K-U-S.com, uh, and uh, in addition, there's there's a bunch of interviews that I've done. I, I run a podcast called Radio Free Leader that interviews people like Dane and, and others who are in the book, um, and then other, um, other book authors. There's also a lot of resources that are derived straight from the book that are yours free to check out there. So if you want to play more with these ideas, but you're not ready to grab the book yet, there's a ton of free resources on davidberkus.com. And of course, from that website, you can get over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere, your favorite retailer where you'd want to grab a copy of the book.
Excellent. David, you are a wealth of information. I've so enjoyed getting to know you. The book is extraordinary, and I would encourage all of our listeners to get out there and buy the book. And I agree, your website has amazing content. So you uh, have great wisdom and insight to share, and I'm grateful. Oh, thank you. No, thank you so much for having me on. This is great. Absolutely. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in to Your Working Life, where my goal is to help you design your career destiny so it doesn't happen by default. Career and life satisfaction is possible, and it's time to embrace what you love doing so you can do more of it. My show is now available on iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, and Stitcher. Leave a comment, because I always appreciate hearing from my listeners. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Take good care.